edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 18th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with Alice Sherwood and... We learned and we believe that this cannot be overemphasised, that when purchasing trains, it is of crucial importance to first undertake a rigorous measuring of one's tunnels. This is not a euphemism, grow up. Andrew Muller gives us his take on the last seven days, so do stay with us. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first... Here's the news. More than 45,000 people have been killed in the earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria, and the toll is expected to soar, with some 264,000 apartments in Turkey destroyed and many still missing in the country's worst modern disaster. Yesterday, 11 days after the quake hit, three survivors were dug out from the rubble in Turkey. The Russian mercenary company Wagner Group has suffered more than 30,000 casualties since Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th, with about 9,000 of those fighters killed in action, the White House said on Friday, estimating that 90% of them were convicts sent to war with no training or equipment. Islamists stormed a police station in the southern Pakistani city of Karachi on Friday, killing two people in a hail of gunfire and a series of loud explosions before they themselves were killed, according to officials. And Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. said today that the country will not lose an inch of territory. The Southeast Asian nation this week protested what it's called Beijing's aggressive activities that have stoked a long-running territorial dispute over the South China. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's pick up on some of those stories in more detail and have a look through the day's papers now with Alice Sherwood. She's a visiting senior research fellow at King's College London's policy unit. Uh, She's also the author of Authenticity, Reclaiming Reality in a Counterfeit Culture. Alice, it's lovely to have you back in the studio. It's lovely to be here. Um, Your book is doing extremely well, isn't it? Um, It seems to have hit a nerve and hit a moment, I have to say, when we're all quite worried about authenticity and attacks on authenticity, whether it's from kind of Russian misinformation or or chatbots, who we may talk about later, I think. Absolutely. Well, let's start with uh, Turkey and, of course, a lack of authenticity in the the information that people were given when they were paying earthquake taxes. They were told this was going towards making safe buildings. It's very, very clear now that's not the case. Sadly, it's dropped out of many of our front pages. It's still being covered, though, in uh, Hurriyet and various uh, publications in in, in the area. What does Hurriyet say? Well, Hurriyet, um, which covers it, as you say, more than uh, other papers uh, might do for obvious reasons, is taken a step back and spoken to seismologists just to remind us of how huge and terrifying and epochal, if you like, this earthquake is. Um, Seismologists have said that this is the biggest earthquake in the region for 2,000 years, Um, that although it only lasted the initial tremor for two minutes, there have been almost 4,000 aftershocks, which have been 
part of the, uh, you know, incredibly destructive in themselves. And we've heard the terrible figures for, for, for death and destruction around. But just to get an idea of the scale of it, the impact area is larger than most European countries. So the, the earthquake was felt in places as far away as Lebanon and Israel. Um, so it really is huge, um, even though on day 13, we are becoming slightly inured to it, which is not mm. good. I mean, one of our Istanbul correspondent is out there and, and going around and just, you can sense the trauma that not only the people who've lost everything, but everybody who's there trying to deal with it is, is going through. It's absolutely horrific. Oh, it's, it's, it's completely awful. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the fault is in the very substandard buildings. And another thing Harriet said is that just in the first week, they have issued proceedings, prosecuted 245 building contractors, including arresting one while he was trying to flee the country, sailing. He was, trying, he was on a sailboat trying to sail from Turkey to Greece mm. uh, to escape, to um, escape the law. One feels that a lot of that might be scapegoating in that the problem was institutional rather than personal, that there were a lot of bribes going on, that there was corruption within the agency that was meant to oversee all of this. And yes, of course, the builders themselves are at fault, but I think it, the, there's a, a recognition amongst Turks, Turkish people, that, that actually this is a government to blame. And it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out in the elections in, the elections, in May. Yeah. Indeed, they may not go ahead, though. Yeah. But lacks, lacks standards, building standards, and as you said, a government that actually offered amnesties to substandard buildings mm. to raise money for itself. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the Times now. And uh, this is a business story, uh, but it's also one that affects us all because, uh, I mean, everybody uses a phone these days. So this is about folding phones. Do you have one? No, I don't. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would want one. Well, they were a huge hit for Samsung, um, that is the market leader, practically the only big company in the market. And they're those little clamshell ones that fold up and make you feel very executive because at the end of the conversation... Actually, goes, I think my, yeah, I think my very first phone uh, was one of those. Yeah. 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 Because they, they were quite old, weren't they? Those, those ones that you just, yeah, yeah, with a little lid. The click open. Yeah. Um, and the new ones where you have a touchscreen and maybe a ta tablet size, where you can fold it and unfold it and it doesn't have a crease and you can slip your tablet into the back of your, your trousers or jeans or whatever. Uh, but the big news is that a patent filed by Apple for touchscreen technology that has a foldable component has just been approved this week. And if you look at the drawings, um, it's not just groovy touchscreen um, elements and the foldability, but that they've even put touch-sensitive areas all around the back of the phone instead of buttons. So it is looking to be, technical term here, super groovy. <laughs> uh, but it also means that Apple may be moving into this market where Samsung has had it all pretty much to itself. Um, and therefore, we've got a little bit of a big bit of disruption that might be happening there. And of course, there is the irony that of that many of the iPhone components and particularly screens and some processors are actually made by Samsung. Mm, that's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, isn't it odd how 
one finds it very hard to imagine technology. I, I, probably not if you're in the sector, but when I had my original little phone back in whatever it was, 1999 might it have been, 2000? Yeah, well, yeah. Something like that. I mean, the, the thought that one could ever have anything that you touched and you could access this thing called the interweb. But, <laughs> it was extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, no, just try mentally describing to your parents, I've got this phone that has all the knowledge of the world. Uh, and more computing power than it takes to go to the moon. Oh, and by the way, I can take photographs with it. Yeah. But I mean, I feel that we're in that moment now where we can't possibly imagine what it is that's coming in 10 years. That it'll be something that we just have no concept of right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite, but quite is, But patents are being filed somewhere. Yeah. 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 So exciting. Um, let's go to India now. Now, this is a row that's been going on for quite a long time. It's quite complex. It's it's reported in uh, by Al Jazeera, but also it's also in Le Monde. Uh, and uh, it involves the BBC. Why don't you tell us about it? It actually made the front page or, or, or the front page online of the FT this morning. And it is that um, the Indian tax authorities have raided BBC premises this year, this year, try again, this week, uh, spent three days sifting through all the paperwork and saying that they're looking for tax irregularities that would in- indicate evasion. And there's some story about some, some accounts of remittances not being properly declared um, and therefore not taxed. Uh, and the BBC has become a little bit of a bugbear, or quite a bit of a bugbear for some figures on the Indian far right. Others are asking, can it be a coincidence that this is a matter of weeks since a BBC documentary was aired about Narendra Modi um, and the terrible riots in Gujarat in 2002 when Modi was governor mm. and about a thousand people died, mostly Muslims. Uh, And they're very much seeing it as further government shutting down of the free press in India, the independent um, media in in India. And that is something we're seeing more and more in India, sadly. Yeah. Um, We're going to have a a wonderful Indian author on uh, soon. Uh, His name is Amish. He only has one name because he's so famous in India. Okay. (laughs) Um, and he has just uh, his uh, book has just been translated into English. It's called Lanka, and he writes about all of these wonderful Hindu gods, uh, and it's um, it's all very exciting. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Absolutely, Alice. We're going to come back to you in a little while because right now it's time for us to uh, check in with Andrew Muller. So global leaders have descended on Germany for the Munich Security Conference, the world's leading forum for debating the most pressing challenges in international security. Well, amongst the attendees is Heather Conley, the president of the German Marshall Fund. She sat down with Andrew and the Foreign Desk team. Let's have a listen. I think the unspoken theme of this thing has been Ukraine one year on. And of course, by hilarious good timing, you started at the German Marshall Fund last January. So how does an event like a major land war in Europe upend your work? I wouldn't say upend. (laughs) I would say renews our mission and purpose. I guess that's the only silver lining of this extraordinary moment. But it it reminds us of what, what we must do together is the transatlantic relationship. The United States is still essential mm-hmm. for European transatlantic security. And for us, as our name suggests, we're the living memorial to the Marshall Plan. And so this gives us an extraordinary moment at our 50th anniversary, because it's the 75th anniversary of the Marshall Plan, to say, we did it once, 
and Europe recovered, and it was the foundations in many ways of the European Union, we can do this again in the 21st century. We must rebuild Ukraine from this war. And so it gives us new purpose. And our work with Ukrainian civil society every day tells us this is urgent. This is the most important work that we do. I want to come back to rebuilding Ukraine because the parallels with Marshall Fund 1.0 are fairly obvious. But the Atlantic Alliance has, of course, had a few rickety moments in recent years, admittedly mostly during the previous US administration. But have you been surprised by how resilient it has proved so far, at least? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you'll recall a year ago concerns that the unity wouldn't hold sanctions. Look, the European Union is now at its 10th round of sanctions, and we thought that unity would peel apart. They were doing oil price caps, you know, hard stuff. And it's remained very unified. But that unity is getting a workout. The conversation over the leopards and Abram tanks, that was a stretching moment for the transatlantic alliance. But we continue to move forward. I think Clearly, the Biden administration and President Biden, who is a transatlanticist to the tips of his toes, he believes this and his administration, whether that's Secretary Tony Blinken, Secretary Lloyd Austin, they've really put their shoulder to this. It's a lot of work and the benefit has paid off. I think where we're going, as you said, this is the one year mark. We're now going into year two. We need to be sharper and clearer on our policy objectives. The slogans for as long as it takes, which of course is powerful, we have to translate that into practical, constant support. And it's going to get harder if this goes into a long slog, long grind. And it's going to be really telling in this offensive. And it's going to stretch over now to later in the spring and the summer if we're going to long grind or we're going to see where the Ukrainians can make more strides as they did in the fall with Kherson and Kharkiv. And we need that momentum to come back again. Whether that momentum comes back or not, and whether this is a long grind or is resolved relatively shortly, how important is it, do you think, to start thinking about the rebuild? Because even if this war stopped tomorrow, it would be an almost unimaginable task. So think back to World War II. We were planning the post-war environment during the war. And we do that because, number one, it's a complete vote of confidence that this will end and we will be victorious and we will rebuild. So you have to plan for that now. And this is why we've really been focused on a modern Marshall Plan for Ukraine. Let's start coordinating this now. Clearly, the Ukrainian government, President Zelensky, has been very forward-leaning in getting that reconstruction and that recovery aid flowing in as quickly as possible. I think the donor community, the United States, Europe, have focused on the military assistance, which understandably, that's the immediate survival, macroeconomic assistance, which has kept uh, the Ukrainian government and salaries being paid but we have to, with the same urgency, start focusing on that rebuild construct. The coordination of that, getting the private sector engaged, getting civil society, making sure we have transparency and accountability. And the longer we don't send that message of hope that Ukraine will recover, there is a better day tomorrow, that post-war reconstruction will be there. 
the longer we delay that hopeful message. So there is an urgency. And we really believe when the UK hosts the next Ukraine donors conference, the Ukraine recovery conference on June, I believe, 21st and the 22nd, we think that conference is incredibly important to build greater momentum towards Ukrainian recovery and the policy pieces that need to be part of that conversation. So we have a lot of urgency right now in the next six months to get a move on for reconstruction. Are there political difficulties, especially in the United States, though, that there weren't in 1945? Obviously, the United States in 2023 is not the United States in 1945. The first Marshall Plan had as much bipartisan support as anything that's ever been floated in the history of the United States. And while there's some bipartisan support for Ukraine now, I know Senators McConnell and Graham are both here at this conference, but there is, let's call it the more excitable wing of the Republican Party, is not here and is very much not on board. They are, in fact, making support for Ukraine somewhat absurdly affronting their own weird culture war. So, uh, number one, there's a third of the U.S. Senate is here at the Munich Security Conference, <laughs> which itself is extraordinary. And right before we left, Senator McConnell gave an interview on Fox News, which said incredibly clearly, Ukraine is the most important thing that we have to get this right. So I know you're hearing those other powerful voices that have a different perspective. I would say there's equally that strong resonance for those Republicans that understand very clearly that Ukraine has incredible importance to U.S. national security. But, you know, so Marshall Plan, you know, it was one country, the United States, providing assistance to 16 European countries. This time, we will have a broad coalition of countries providing to one country. So the burden will be shared. And I think this is what's so important. The government has to set the framework and the policies, and then let's let the private sector, let's let civil society, let's let them make sure that they're helpful in the rebuilding process. It doesn't have to be taxpayers that are shouldering this burden. Let's put Russian frozen assets to work in rebuilding Ukraine. But the underlying principle of the Marshall Plan was European integration. So equal to this is making sure that Ukraine continues to have full access access to the European market as they build towards their EU membership. So that's equally important. The aid is important, but as the original administrator in charge of the European Recovery Program or the Marshall Plan, he said, we're not just seeking reconstruction and recovery, we're building markets, and we have to build Ukraine's market as we rebuild it from the war. That's Heather Connolly there, the president of the German Marshall Fund, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. He's been in Munich uh, this week, and we've been hearing from him uh, uh, on various programmes. He'll be back in London on Monday, uh, and we'll hear from him once again towards the end of this programme. Now, though, let's have another look at the day's papers with Alice Sherwood, who's still with me, uh, and Alice, we were talking about technology and how it's very difficult to predict what's coming if you're not a particularly techie person. Chat GBT. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's, uh, I mean, people are in a panic about it, and I'm not surprised. Well, they are in a panic, and, and the press is having a lovely time with this AI um, text generator that creates, generates text that sounds almost human. It is just a mimic. It is just predictive text like you have on your phone to help you kind of quickly answer messages. It's predictive text on a massive scale, but it's so good 
that um, I think this week's, uh, I call it this week's moral panic, uh, it was a rather good article in the New York Times where the journalist interviewed Bing's new AI chat GPT program uh, and, and questioned it closely to a point where the, the bot um, confessed that its name was Sydney. And that he was in love with the journalist. And that the journalist should leave his wife. And that the journalist should leave his wife because his marriage was clearly a sham. <laughs> and all of this is, obviously, if you ask the right questions, you will delve basically into the vastness of human experience that, that is out there on, on the web. And, and this programme will channel every kind of stalker conversation that you can imagine. So you can turn a chatbot into a love-struck stalker if you question it in the, in the appropriate direction. But what really um, caught my imagination is that uh, many people have signed up to use ChatGPT3. I've also signed up for a programme from the same people at OpenAI called AI Classifier. And this is the reverse technology. This is where you paste a chunk of text that you found into their dialogue box and then run the program and it will tell you whether it was generated by artificial intelligence or by human. In other words, the same company is making the software to detect fakes as well as to create them. And obviously it's very good at doing that because it knows how you create the damn thing in the first place. Am I allowed to say damn? Of course. <laughs> uh, so, so I thought that was very interesting. And, and another piece um, yesterday, I think it was, um, where they are creating uh, almost a sort of watermark or code so that uh, you can tell, if you know how to, whether something is generated by AI or whether it's written by a human. Uh, and that, I think, is, is, is quite nice. And it also has overtones of secret codes way back when, when you had special words, mm. that if they were used, meant that the person wasn't really um, saying what they purported to say. And my example would always be uh, if you had the, the forced confession, the burglar who confessed to a burglary, but it began, you know, I was proceeding in an orderly fashion down Acacia Avenue when I chanced upon house number 43, which I burgled. You know, this is the voice not of a burglar, yes. but of the person forcing the confession. And it's the same principle where you are seeding words that um, AI would not use so that you can detect that it's AI later. Absolutely. I mean, having having um, lived in a, in a state where the, the media was very repressed and being very closely watched by people, even within our family and within our, our um, colleagues, we had various words and everybody was aware oh, really? of the fact if you say this, it's because you're being listened to. Do not, uh, you know, do not say anything sensitive because I've said this word at the beginning of this conversation. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so you had safe words early on where you said, I'm, I'm going out for a bagel. Yeah, which yeah. really meant you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's listening. <laughs> yeah. um, but this this piece is so interesting in, in terms of how it actually works because it's, it's, it's built on what's called a large language model. Mm. Uh, and it's basically, it's taking, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of words and things. But of course, people have used this. They, they, they feed this stuff in so that you, I mean, early versions of this were enormously right-wing and very misogynist. Yes. And, and one of the reasons they release 
each chat GP1, GPT2, 3, is that they want human beings to interact with it and say, that's not true, that's really not okay. Uh, and then they go back and you know, reiterate it. Yeah, uh, Alice. Let's move on. I mean, we don't normally do. <laughs> we don't normally do royalty. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry about that, but it is too good. Uh, but it is a, a kind of funny story. So tell us what's going on, because of course the uh, coronation of King Charles is coming up, and it's got all the Aristos in a tizzy. Uh, totally. So yes, King Charles' coronation is happening on the May May the sixth. Uh, I'm sure. Save the date. Um, <laughs> and and it is as. I don't want to say daft, as Ruritanian and extremely traditional as you could imagine. And historically, and that's just going back 700 years, uh, various aristocratic families have had the right to do various things, which include hold the gilded spurs that the monarch is presented with, uh, anoint the monarch with oil, dress him, undress him, and even uh, present him with a pair of falcons. But very useful, a pair of falcons. Incredibly useful at a coronation, <laughs> but they've hit two two problems. One is that in the new streamlined monarchy, um, the coronation will not be three hours like Queen Elizabeth's was, but one and a half hours. So you're going to have to drop a lot of falcons out of that in the first place. <laughs> and the second pl- point is that the Court of Claims, um, which used to hear the appeals from the aristocratic families who would say things like, um, my ancestor did this for Richard II, so please can he do it for you, um, has been replaced by an office in the Cabinet Office. And the aristocrats, the peers, are having to fill in an application form. <laughs> uh, I think 200 have filled in so far uh, to see if they might be allowed to fulfil their ancestral duties. And it's a hoot. Well, it, it's just a complete hoot. Uh, your family is not uh, entirely without interest in this. Um, well, I, my, my husband's family um, have uh, some uh, aristocratic links, um, but... Uh, they've never, they're relatively, God, he might shoot me, I hope you're not listening. <laughs> they're of relatively recent recreation, recreation, very ancient family, uh, but they're Welsh uh, and have never had any coronation duties. So um, he can watch this with a sort of amused smile um, as, the, as the peers battle it out. Fabulous stuff, Alice. Thank you so much. I'm not going to call you Lady Alice. Uh, Alice Sherwood there. Um, Her highly acclaimed book, Authenticity, Reclaiming Reality in a Counterfeit Culture, is out now. I highly recommend you get it. Uh, And you should also listen to the interview that Alice and I did uh, a little while ago. You can find it in our archives in which she talks about the book, about authenticity, about what sparked the idea. It was a a fabulous, well, not so fabulous, but a a really interesting incident with a, a close friend and colleague of hers. Uh, So do head to Meet the Writers in our archives and have a look for Alice Sherwood. Monocle's fresh out-of-the-blocks March issue asks if the automotive industry is heading in the right direction with an in-depth dive into the future of electric vehicles plus the potholes along the way. Elsewhere in the issue, we offer a common-sense manifesto for the future of business that's more bulls and bears than it is unicorns and fancy valuations. Plus, architect Ivan Ivanov's new Aussie vernacular, a crafty new inn in Fukuoka, and a review of Europe's best new factories for fashion brands looking to make it at home. Buy the issue today or do the right thing and subscribe so you never miss a beat. 
Head to monocle.com slash subscribe for more. And to end the show, Andrew Muller is back. We learned this week that we are not alone. Well, possibly. We learned following last week's hilarity involving a US Air Force F-22 and a Chinese balloon, and actually let's have that sound effect of a Sidewinder missile deflating a dirigible with an anticlimactic pop again. I know you worked hard on it. That's the one. We learned of three further Zeppelin incursions into the airspace of the North American continent, and we learned that one very senior US Air Force officer does not understand the media, the online information ecosystem, or people in general. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. Before we learned that whether out of diligent fealty to the known facts or bleak amusement at the situation in which he found himself, General Glenn Van Herc, head of North American Aerospace Defense Command, was not about to entirely discount the possibility that humankind was under assault from the vanguard of a Martian landing force. Because you still haven't been able to tell us what these things are that we are shooting out of the sky, that raises the question. Have you ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials, and if so, why? Thanks for the question, Helene. I'll let the intel community and the uh, counterintelligence community figure that out. I haven't ruled out anything uh, at this point. We continue to assess uh, every threat or potential threat unknown that approaches North America with an attempt to identify it. And we learned that both professional and social media were absolutely going to respond to this punctiliously professional no comment with exactly the calm, rational and detached perspective which might have been expected. Which, we learned, gave White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre yet further opportunity to demonstrate the overlap between her job and that of a weary schoolteacher lumbered with a class of extremely dim children. Before I turn it over to the Admiral, I just wanted to make sure we address this from the White House. I know there have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. We learned, however, that if these three new aircraft were the first wave of an invasion by alien marauders, then boy, had they picked the wrong planet to mess with. We learned that the USAF's top guns had blasted them from the skies, apparently ending this live-action remake of Orson Welles' 1938 radio production of War of the Worlds, until the next time America finds something to freak all the way out about, which on form has probably already happened by the time you hear this. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. Anyway. 
Sticking with this week's apparent theme of Western militaries overreacting somewhat to arguably imaginary threats, we learned that France had declared war on Wakanda, and we wish to make it clear that we, for one, humorous news monologue will be rising nobly above any cheap tittering to the effect that France has at last identified an opponent it can beat. We learned that France's Minister for Defence and current title holder of world's most French name, Sébastien Lecornu, had found time in what might be hoped would be a busier schedule to get upset with a scene from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, in which a gaggle of captured mercenaries dressed in what does resemble French camouflage, maybe a bit if you're absolutely determined to see a resemblance in order to get wound up about it, are given an earful by Queen Ramonda in front of the UN. Further attempts on our resources will be considered an act of aggression and met with a much steeper response. We learned that Monsieur Leconnu had confined his umbrage to Twitter, which presents something of a challenge to an audio medium such as ours, so let's have another run out for that chorus of Gallic indignation we made on a slow afternoon a couple of years back. That is, on reflection, arguably borderline, but its reappearance does emphasise how terrifically important it is that all public officials also record their fat-headed contributions to inane controversies about total non-issues, so we have something to work with. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. I know right. Elsewhere, we learned and we believe that this cannot be overemphasised, that when purchasing trains, it is of crucial importance to first undertake a rigorous measuring of one's tunnels. This is not a euphemism, grow up. We learned that Spain had learned this the hard way, belting out 258 million euros on 31 new passenger trains for Asturias and Cantabria, which will not, it turns out, fit into the region's mountain passes. We must have a train crash clip somewhere. That'll do. And we learned of the theft of Easter eggs. Right, you've seen where this is going. Let's just get through this. We learned specifically that 200,000 Cadbury's cream eggs had been poached from an industrial estate in Telford, but we swiftly learned that, yes, police had been taken off the beat and scrambled. Detectives had cracked the case and that the oaf who hatched the plan had been whisked to prison and that because he possessed an extensive prior record, he can, yes, correctly claim to have been foiled again. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And Andrew brings today's programme to a close. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, goodbye and thanks for listening.